Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. If you invite me over to your house, I have to warn you, I'm a book snoop. You'll never find me looking in your medicine cabinet or hunting around in your mail. But if you leave me alone, I'm going to examine your coffee table stack and study your bookshelves. I can't help myself. I don't inspect your books with any great purpose. Mostly I'm just curious. But I do enjoy coming across the books you kept from college. There's often a shelf of these, and you can kind of always tell. They're a little more battered than the others. There might even be a textbook or two. What I find interesting about these books is not that you studied them, but that you kept them year after year, move after move, city to city. Maybe you like to revisit them and remember college, where anything seemed possible. Or maybe it's just nostalgia, and you just can't bring yourself to get rid of them no matter how many years pass. They help shape the person you are, and they remind you of who you were back then. When you come to my house, you'll easily find your way to my college shelf. Zora Neale Hurston sits next to Lucretius, Rilke next to Emily Dickinson. Say hello to them. They're old friends of mine. And recently, I got to talking about the deep mark that college friendships can leave on us with today's guest. My name is Jeff Hobbs, and I'm a nonfiction writer. Jeff Hobbs is the author of The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace. He went to Yale, lived in New York City, and lives in Los Angeles now. But growing up, he says places like those seemed far, far away. I grew up in the country in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, about 40 miles from Philly, a town called Kennett Square, the mushroom capital of the world, uh, the kind you put in salads, uh, uh, that kind of mushroom. Were you a big reader as a kid? Yeah, very, very big. Mostly fantasy, Tolkien, that, that sort of thing. Uh, sitting in trees during my siblings' baseball and lacrosse games. Uh, well, my dad kind of begged me to come down and, and play more sports. Did you play any sports? <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, that uh, was a big thing in our, our family. Jeff played football and basketball, not well, he says, and he ran track pretty seriously. But he still spent a lot of time reading and especially remembers the times he stayed up too late and the trouble that he got into. 3 a.m. nights, my mom pissed off uh, uh, when I was a very little kid. My daughter likes hearing these stories, uh, and I promised her I would never get mad at her if I caught her reading too late. How old is your daughter now? Uh, she's eight now. Is she a big reader? Uh, she is, yeah. Why do you think fantasy appealed to you as a little kid? Uh, I don't know. I guess I, I probably had a pretty sheltered and, and uh, uh, insular life, um, you know, in the country and, and with a pretty tight family. But soon enough, he found himself heading off to college, to Yale, where his dad and two older siblings had gone as well. The summer before his freshman year, he got his room assignment. There were three roommates, but one name in particular stuck out, Robert Peace. I had sent him like a really dorky letter with lots of exclamation points, and, uh, and he called back. I mean, the first thing I realized was he's black. Just the, you could tell by his voice. But he said that he uh, played a little water polo and went to a prep school. And so heading into Yale, I assumed that he was a pretty typical Yale freshman. 
he was probably more confident than me, but we were both, uh, you know, a little introverted in, in a certain way, and both preferred to spend most of her time in the room reading. And just through proximity, you know, these rooms are not very big. Uh, you end up uh, just chewing the fat quite a bit. Jeff and Rob became friends, and Jeff found out that Rob was not the typical Yale freshman he had imagined. He came from East Orange, New Jersey, where his father had been convicted of manslaughter when Rob was seven. Rob had started smoking marijuana pretty young and sold it throughout college. At Yale, he studied molecular biophysics and biochemistry, while Jeff majored in English and, after graduation, started writing. Well, I'd always wanted to write books, and I guess, I mean, partly because of my own privilege, I could go to New York City and, and drink a lot of coffee, and uh, I worked in nonprofit and sort of stayed up late working on my novels and uh, was also fortunate to publish one when I was 27, and uh, I don't recommend that book to, to anybody. And while Jeff was in New York City, he occasionally got together with his old roommate. After graduation, Rob moved back to Newark, where he spent some time working as a teacher at his alma mater. We saw each other quite a bit the first few years. We'd take the PATH train back and forth. He was a groomsman in my wedding, and actually one, one of the few people when I proposed to this uh, girl who, um, you know, we've been married for uh, 13 years now. When I proposed, I'd known her for, for six weeks, and, uh, uh, and I, I was very young. I was 23 at the time, and uh, there was a lot of you know, resistance to that among friends and particularly family, and Rob was one of the few people who uh, you know, said other people bring their problems to things, and you have to kind of do what, what you think is right for, for better or for worse. You know, he gave me an envelope with a $50 bill, and, and we hugged, and I watched him walk off with his gal at the time, um, not knowing that would be the last time I'd ever see him alive. And over the next five years, we, I moved to California the very next day. We spoke on the phone, you know, four or five times a year, the way guys talk, you know, what's up, it's all good, good. I'm not really digging into things, but the conversations were were genuine and we made the effort and we talked about a reunion and it seemed like life was long and there would always be time, um, but there there wasn't, I, I guess. Two thousand eleven, almost exactly nine years after we graduated, I uh, my phone dinged uh, while I was brushing my teeth and uh, and I learned that he had died uh, violently. For overdrugs. Rob was murdered in a basement in Newark in what appeared to be a drug deal gone wrong. It's not like he died and I was thinking I'm going to write a book. It was more like the funeral brought all these people together and I mean there were 400 people from all over the world and uh, it's a particular kind of grief at a funeral like that, uh, awful grief, which I had never experienced before. And we did the best we could to kind of celebrate him, and we all came home from that funeral, and, and we sort of kept telling those stories on, on Facebook and on the phone and in person when we could, and 
this uh, community formed. And at a certain point, maybe six months later, I foolishly volunteered, I guess, to uh, make some kind of compilation of these stories. At the time, I was thinking maybe a thousand-word piece in the in the Yale Magazine or his high school newsletter or the or the East Orange local paper, something you know nobody would read but might speak to his uh, life and not just his death. When we come back from the break, Jeff begins to work on a book about Rob's life and comes across one that changes his own. Jeff Hobbs was a published novelist when his college roommate, Rob Peace, was murdered. Confronted with not just his own grief and memories, but also the stories of Rob's extended group of family and friends, he set out to write something to memorialize his friend, something small. You know, that that 1,000-word piece kind of spiraled, and, and everyone I talked to sent me to five more people, and, you know, I planned to talk to six or eight of Rob's friends, and it became 60, then 80, and... and uh, I call it a eulogy that got way out of hand, and that's how it, it turned into book form. But as he began to write about Rob, Jeff realized that the project was unlike anything he had ever attempted before. I had never written nonfiction before. There's a feeling, I think, among fiction writers that nonfiction, it's sort of like you find a, a quarter on the sidewalk and and you sort of put it out there in, in book form. If you stumble on a story, it's sort of a lesser art form than fiction. I sort of uh, subscribed to this, again, uh, having never written it or really studied it or really read it, I mean, beyond school assignments. So I asked my agent, who's a really good friend, if there were any seminal books I should read that, that might be helpful, and he uh, you know, he went to his shelf, pulled it out, and sort of solemnly placed it in my hands and uh, told me how much it meant to him. That book was There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz. In the office, you know, I, I took it from him. I, I thanked him and went home and opened it. And it's just one of those books that you open it and, you know, maybe you come out two or three days later exhausted and, and illuminated the book follows two young boys, brothers, as they grow up in a public housing project in Chicago. Kotlowitz spent years with the boys and their mother, totally immersed in their world, an invisible narrator in the story. It's really about the horrors that these boys live with every day, the, the violence and the, and, the, and the death and the starvation and the, and the brown water that comes out of their faucet. Uh, sort of couched in the fact that they are boys and they experience wonder uh, and they and they you know look for snakes by the train tracks and and they play games and uh, and they take care of each other has uh, having a, a child yourself changed your reading of the book i mean having a child sort of changes uh, your reading of everything. Um, but I actually remember, so my daughter was probably one when I read this book, maybe two, 
and I was also working on Rob Peace at the same time. So as she grew up, she she kind of you know grew up with the, these books and work that I was doing. She started preschool, so she must have been three, and there was a toy drive or a supply drive, you know, toothbrushes and 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 things, a big basket that we filled up to take down to the L.A. mission. I was driving with Lucy, and the basket was next to her, and there was a yellow toothbrush at the top of it, and yellow at the time was an obsession of, of hers, so she really wanted this yellow toothbrush, and I said, absolutely not, and she's kind of freaking out. She's like, there's all these things here, like, who's going to miss this little toothbrush? And I, you know, I was trying to explain about uh, where we were going and what these things were, what these supplies were for, and she wasn't quite getting it. And, and I talked about this book, and, and particularly this, the young boy, and, you know, the circumstances they, they lived in, and the fact that, you know, he probably didn't have a toothbrush uh, a lot of the time, at least not a brand new one, um, and sort of went on about it, and she asked a couple questions, and at least the conversation was enough to get us to the mission without, without more... Uh, uh, negotiating, uh, and then when we got there, and, and I dropped it off, you know, in the in the lobby, and I guess the toothbrush had fallen out when I was carrying it, and she picked up the toothbrush and said, "Dad, this toothbrush fell out. Like, make sure that people get it." And while the book had an impact on Jeff's personal life, it also had a huge effect on the writing of his own book. Workwise, it it just uh, informed me that. Because I was pretty early on, um, at just the the sheer amount of work that goes into uh, something as great as his book, which you know you aspire to, you uh, probably won't won't hit it. Um, but a, as a person, I guess I had always. I mean, I described growing up in in the country and in a pretty insular family, uh, but uh, because I ran track pretty seriously and. So I spent my summers, you know, in cramped vans and, and cheap uh, motels with, with my teammates who, who were pretty much black guys and girls. Uh, you know, I learned how to play spades and, and I listened to, to Nas and my teammates called me an honorary black man, which is kind of a benign joke we were all in on. But, uh, you know, I thought I was down at least. And, you know, having black roommates in, in college and black friends and then you know, working on the book and, and sort of being part of this community of his. Uh, uh, again, I, I thought I was pretty savvy when it, when it came to, to black people and their culture and their communities. And I read this book and, and it just exploded all that. It's painful when you're my age to learn how ignorant you were, even in the case of reading this book, even hours before. Uh, it's painful, and it's also very valuable. And the lessons of Kotlowitz's book have stayed with Jeff as he's gone around the country speaking to black and white people alike about Rob's story. Empathy is a word that is overused. It's important. But it's kind of vague and gets confused with with another word that sounds 
similar, especially among young people. And I found that when, when you start talking about empathy as some sort of equalizer, you know, people tune out and, uh, and, you know, all there is to be is uh, curious and humble and earnest and wanting to know more. And if you know more, then, uh, you know, you're never going to be down as I thought I was, but you can maybe do more in whatever capacity. What's the uh, word that empathy is confused with? Uh, Sympathy. The project grew a little bit out of my hands at a certain point. Um, I struggled with sort of the question of what's the point? Like what positive value could be gotten from a story about a, a, a bright guy who was born with a lot of gifts and given a lot of gifts and overcame a lot of challenges and then died because of a, of a few bad decisions. Uh, but the other question was, what would Rob think? He, he was a pretty private guy, and uh, I bet he'd be uh, pretty pissed, and, and he was not the kind of guy you wanted pissed off at you. Uh, tr- trust me, it wasn't, wasn't fun. Um, and... At this point, having schools uh, from Ivy League to to juvenile halls and, and mostly uh, pretty rough inner city schools where students have read the book or talked about it. And uh, there's something about Rob and his story that maybe compels young people, particularly young men, to share their own stories with each other. And uh, I think that's the point. And that was sort of Rob's great gift was, uh, was sort of listening making you feel safe and unjudged. And, uh, uh, I mean, you might kick my ass first, but uh, I think you might be uh, pretty proud of, uh, of yeah, what he's done. That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson, with editing help from Alyssa Martino and Alex Abnos. Thanks to Jeff Hobbs. If you'd like to learn more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. There's a book that changed your life. We want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstoryatmacmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.